A space station crashes to Earth. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Has it happened yet? As we finished producing this week's show, Tiangong-1 had not yet re-entered Earth's atmosphere, creating a magnificent fireworks show that would leave souvenirs on the ground. No one knows more about space debris than the Aerospace Corporation's Bill Ayler, and we've got him on this week's show. He'll also tell us about the crowded sky, and we'll review the status of planetary defense against near-Earth objects. The Chinese space station is also on Bruce Betts' mind. We'll talk about it and much more on What's Up. NASA finally has a budget for the current fiscal year. Casey Dreyer will bring us the highlights. And we begin this big episode with Planetary Society Senior Editor Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, welcome back from LPSC. I know it's one of your favorites every year, uh, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference. Uh, How tough is it to decide uh, what you're going to be able to report on? Well, it doesn't help that I want to clone myself every year so that I can appear (laughs) in multiple rooms. Um, It does help that there are a lot of people who have the same problem. And so we all tweet for each other. We can follow notes. And this year, I actually started an effort to do collaborative note-taking. So one of the blog posts that I don't have have up yet, but which I hope to have up soon, will be a link to some of those collaboratively taken notes so you can actually see uh, what people wrote down while they were in the sessions. And you've recruited some uh, great guest bloggers too, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I've already got a post up by Jake Robbins about uh, Mars downslope mass wasting processes. And I've got a few more in the pipeline, one on Galilean satellites, one on the moon. There's a lot of good stuff coming. Let's talk about your post that uh, I just read a few minutes ago. Uh, Titan is terrific. And you give plenty of evidence for that. But even here, you had to sort of be picky about what you could report on. You know, when you have a mission that's operated for 14 years, like Cassini did at Saturn, a lot of the updates you see at conferences are kind of incremental reports and how a particular line of research has advanced a little bit since the last meeting. And so what I was really more drawn to were a couple of the more out there presentations in the Titan session. Two of them started off whole new fields of study for Titan. So one of them was by Morgan Cable, and she was talking about molecular minerals on Titan. Now, if you're a geologist, a mineral is a naturally occurring crystalline substance with an orderly uh, arrangement of its atoms and a fixed chemical composition. And on Earth, those are made with things like iron and oxygen and silica and magnesium. On Titan, they'd be made of small organic molecules. And she was doing experiments in the lab with molecules molecules like ethane, acetylene, propane, hydrogen cyanide. Uh, These are all things that exist on Titan's surface and which make OSHA just throw up their hands and scream about all these materials that are in the (laughs) laboratory. Uh, But she's doing some pretty interesting work looking at the kinds of crystals that you'd expect to form the organic minerals on Titan and finding that some of them have some pretty interesting behavior, like how they might expand quite a lot when they warm up, which would cause tectonics on the surface. So that was really interesting. And maybe even forming rings around Titan lakes, uh, rings around the bathtub, so to speak. That's right. We've seen these light deposits around lakes on Titan. We don't actually know if they're deposits, but they're these light rings around the lakes. And who knows? They could be evaporate deposits, maybe, or they might be something else. Who knows? So that's Titan petrology. So now let's talk about a different 
kind of science, Titan seismology. So Mark Panning gave a talk about what the Dragonfly mission might be able to do with a seismometer on Titan, listening for ice quakes caused by Titan being flexed as it goes around Saturn in its orbit, and what you could learn about Titan's interior and the thickness of its ice shell from the different kinds of waves that you'd expect to receive at a seismometer on a future landed mission. I guess that that just could happen if the Dragonfly mission moves forward. It absolutely could. And Dragonfly is planning to attend, to take a seismometer. And, and one of the things that Mark was asking was, what would it detect? Would it be able to detect ice quakes or would it only hear noise from the wind? Because Titan has a thick atmosphere and wind. And the answer turns out to be yes, it should be able to detect ice quakes. You don't need a ridiculously sensitive seismometer like the one that Insight, Mars Insight has. You could get by with a with a good quality but not insane quality seismometer and, and get some good results on uh, the ice thickness on Titan. Great artist concept of Dragonfly doing its thing, this uh, drone on the surface of this uh, moon with a thick atmosphere and such interesting surface chemistry. In Emily's blog, which uh, is a March 21 entry at planetary.org, let's go ahead and mention the one other story that you had room for here. And this seems to indicate that hydrogen cyanide, that nasty stuff, which is in Titan's atmosphere, might have something to tell us about the origin of life on Earth. Yeah, so this is kind of a complicated and interested and and speculative story, but I'll try to explain it. So hydrogen cyanide is a very simple gas. It's hydrogen, um, carbon, and nitrogen all, all bonded together. And it exists in Titan's atmosphere. All the nitrogen stuff in Titan's atmosphere, in order to make it, the sun has to break up molecular nitrogen. If you remember from your high school chemistry, nitrogen bonds to itself with a triple bond. It's a very strong bond and it's hard to break up. It turns out that it's easier or it's more likely to break up if you have two different isotopes of nitrogen bound together, nitrogen 14 and nitrogen 15, than if you have the same more common isotope. And what that means is that hydrogen cyanide is heavy. It has more nitrogen 15, more of the heavy isotope. And because hydrogen cyanide is implicated in some of the chemical reactions that are thought to make thought to happen in a prebiotic atmosphere where the kinds of things that would make the primordial soup that you would imagine would be a place for life to begin, you would expect the earliest kind of life that used hydrogen cyanide to also be isotopically heavy, would have heavy nitrogen. And so what does this all have to do with Earth? Well, if Earth had the same kind of early atmosphere, which we think it might very well have, and life got started in the very early Earth with a lot of heavy hydrogen cyanide in the atmosphere, then in fossil uh, records of the Earth, even if there's no evidence whatsoever left of any kind of life form that existed, it's all been crushed and formed into minerals, but still any nitrogen in those minerals would have that isotopic signature, would have that heavy hydrogen. Uh, Chris Glein was suggesting that maybe if we look at Earth's very earliest rocks and we go hunting for this heavy nitrogen signature, that might be a sign that early life existed at the time of those very ancient rocks. There's a lot of if, 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 if there, but if the signal existed, it could be a very strong signal potentially. So it's worth looking for. More indications that by exploring the solar system and beyond, we are potentially learning more about ourselves. Emily, thank you. There's so much more uh, at planetary.org than this uh, one blog post that you uh, put there on March 21st. And we'll look uh, for more from you and from those guest bloggers that you mentioned. That's right. I'll have many posts up this week.
Emily Lakdawale is the senior editor for the Planetary Society, and uh, she joins us from time to time here on the show. On now to Casey Dreyer, the director of space policy for the Planetary Society, with an, an update on what looks to be a really good NASA budget. Casey, welcome back. Uh, big news about the budget uh, that has just been signed by President Trump within the last few days. Is this uh, good news for NASA and, and for science overall? Matt, this isn't good news. This is spectacular news. <laughs> this is really good budget uh, for NASA and for science just broadly within the U.S. government. I believe it. this may be the best year for U.S. investment in science in a decade, if not more. Very impressive. All right. Now, let's stick to NASA, although Noah and others you point out do pretty well as well. What are you most happy about in the NASA budget? <laughs> Where do I begin? Big picture, NASA got $20.7 billion. That was the compromise that it's, you know, the House had originally proposed 19.8 billion for NASA, 19.9. The Senate had proposed 19.6 and the compromise was 20.7. Now that's a compromise <laughs> everyone can get behind. The pie got bigger. So everyone's slice got to grow and no one really had to pay the price. Planetary science, obviously our main focus here at the Planetary Society grew to its largest budget, I think, in history. It gets a little hard to go out way back in time to the 70s just because of the programmatic differences between the programs. $2.2 billion for planetary science. It was not that long ago that we were talking about 1.5 and just struggling to get to that after a decade of, of cuts to planetary science. So a spectacular number for planetary science. It supports Europa. It supports Mars. They have a lot of planetary society priorities are included in there including recommendations that we made last year for investing in Mars sample return and a science orbiter, extra $75 million for that, NEOCAM, that asteroid hunting space telescope, lives to develop another year, uh, gets a minimal amount of funding to keep that mission on life support. That was an important win for us. And then, of course, there's just broad support in all of the sciences grew. Uh, NASA science grew to over $6 billion this year. Uh, it's just a spectacular number. What else surprised you in this? Earth science. The Trump administration and the Trump campaign was not exactly a welcoming place for earth science and, and climate research. They had proposed, you know, I would even say a, a unexpectedly modest cut to earth science for this year in, this, in the 2018 budget. And what ended up happening was earth science got exactly what it did last year, it did not lose a penny. And of the five missions that they proposed to cancel, Four of them were fully funded for 2018. The fifth one was actually just canceled by NASA on its own due to cost overruns, basically. So Earth Science did great, kind of maintains its peak funding for the third year in a row at $1.9 billion. We also saw a second kind of surprise mobile launcher, a new mobile launch tower for the Space Launch System that had been recommended by an aerospace safety advisory board to NASA and it would help minimize the time between the first launch of the SLS in 2020 and the second launch of the SLS, which is an upgraded version, the Block 1B, which needed significant tower upgrades to handle the, the taller rocket, the new umbilical connections, all that kind of good stuff. So instead of upgrading the existing tower, NASA gets a second one. Casey, it was only this morning as we speak that we learned from NASA that the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, is going to be delayed even further. Uh, do you see that having any effect on spending uh, this year and uh, in the next few years? 
Well, spending this year is now set. So this budget that just passed actually kind of retroactively applies to the fiscal year that began in October of 2017. So we're already halfway through it. Uh, In that budget, they gave the requested amount to James Webb, about half a billion dollars. And they also gave money to what is meant to be the successor of James Webb, the W-First Space Telescope. Let me see if I can do this off the top of my head. The Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. Yeah, well, done. well done. That's it. <laughs> yeah, it's what I get paid to do, Matt. Uh, <laughs> and this has been actually proposed to be canceled next year in the 2019 fiscal year by the White House. Now, there's been a campaign to try to restate that funding, and Congress notably included $150 million for 2018 this year to continue that mission. So not exactly a big uh, statement of support for cancellation by Congress. But now that James Webb is uh, blowing its budget again, that difference, the idea that James Webb, the cost of that would diminish over time to just transfer into operations, that would open up this new funding wedge, as they call it in NASA parlance, to be used by W first. Now that James Webb will likely not give up that funding for at least the next couple of years, that makes it a lot harder to begin working on W-First in earnest, even if it weren't going to be canceled. So this is just going to make the financial situation so much tighter for the astrophysics community to try to work on the next space telescope while they rush to try to fix the issues with their upcoming space telescope that they need to get up, launched, and getting data as soon as they can. Wow, the one sour note in all of this. If you'd like to read about all of the great news that uh, Casey has just talked about and much more, it's in his blog entry for March 22 of this year. Uh, It's even been updated to indicate how the White House has signed it into law. It's all there at planetary.org, including a a terrific table that traces the development of uh, this budget. Uh, Casey, thanks very much. I look forward to talking to you. Next week, uh, the first Friday of April, when we'll um, be joined by Jason Callahan for that month's Space Policy Edition. Absolutely, Matt. Let's accentuate the positive until that point. (laughs) Casey Dreyer, he is the Director of Space Policy for the Planetary Society. Stay with us in just a few moments. Uh, We'll talk about a big piece of metal that's uh, coming down really soon, if it hasn't already. It isn't every day that a space station crashes back to Earth, but avoiding space junk that is still in low Earth orbit is a daily concern for everyone from the operators of the smallest CubeSats up to the astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station, where something as small as a loose screw could ruin your whole day. Bill Ayler has been studying our crowded skies at the Aerospace Corporation for 44 years, he was chief engineer for the company's Center for Orbital and Reentry Debris Studies and continues his long tenure as an aerospace fellow. Some of you will remember him because of his parallel involvement with planetary defense, making sure we find, track, and, when it becomes necessary, deflect a comet or asteroid on a collision path with our world. Bill recently spoke to me from his office on the sprawling aerospace campus in Southern California. Bill, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It is uh, great to get you back on the show. I'm only sorry that we're not doing this uh, from a planetary defense conference because you know I've had the best time at uh, the two of those that I've attended. 
Uh, Matt, it's good talking to you too, and I'm glad you've enjoyed the conferences. We'll get back to that, the PDC. I didn't make it to the last one, but I sure hope to get to the next one, But because there's something much more immediate for us to talk about. Something is going to be falling out of orbit in uh, just the next few days. In fact, by the time a lot of people hear this program, it may have already happened. Tell us what we should expect by uh, the reentry of this Chinese space station. Uh, it certainly is coming down, that much we know, and um, it will uh, re-enter the atmosphere at some place uh, we don't know where exactly and probably won't know uh, very well uh, even when it does come in. So it'll be quite a spectacular view for some, some lucky people if they have to see it. It's a reasonable chance nobody will see it at all. So there's going to be quite a, a show in the sky for the people who are not far away? Oh, it'd be magnificent. The way these things work is, um, you know, it hits the atmosphere, the friction with the uh, atmosphere at those high altitudes that gradually heats it up. It comes apart into big pieces first and then little pieces and things shed off. And it's uh, it's like a fireworks show. It's uh, really a beautiful thing to see in the last uh, couple of minutes. That's what sort of makes it different than a, than a, a meteor shower. Should I be hoping that I'll be under this to catch that show, or uh, would it be much better if it happens uh, far away from any any place inhabited? We hope it happens somewhere where there's nobody around. I mean, if you happen to see it, there's a real good chance that the debris isn't going to fall on your head. So that's uh, one good thing. Uh, but clearly on these kinds of things, uh, you know, there may be some danger, uh, some hazardous fragments that come down and survive. So uh, it'd be better not to be under the uh, final footprint. So I've read differing accounts in the media, some that say, yes, uh, some fragments are likely to survive, and others that say, no, we probably will see it all burn up in the atmosphere. It sounds like you're saying uh, the former uh, is is the case, that but probably some of this space station is going to make it down to terra firma. Oh, yes, I think so. Generally, objects this size, um, we would expect to see anywhere from, say, 10 to 40 percent of its mass on orbit to uh, re-enter and survive. It just depends on what it's made of and so forth, but there's a lot of evidence that, that these kinds of things, uh, that fragments of these uh, things survive and will hit the ground. This is not the first space station or large object in orbit that has uh, come back in, well, in this case, in kind of an uncontrolled way, right? I mean, what, what have we seen in the past? Oh, that's correct. This is an uncontrolled reentry, which means that the atmosphere just sort of drags it down and it comes in wherever it pleases. Uh, a controlled reentry would be one uh, that brings something, uh, brings an object down uh, into an area where it's definitely not going to be a hazard. Uncontrolled reentry is probably the largest one that's ever occurred. Was uh, the United States uh, Skylab, which came down in 1979, and that one uh, weighed about 69,000 kilograms. That's a big object. So uh, Taiyang Gong is. Uh, around eight to 9,000 kilograms, so much smaller. But generally, a, a control reentry would be, say, uh, for example, the space shuttle. Space shuttle was designed to land in a particular place, and so um, basically you command a, a rocket on board that object to uh, execute a deorbit burn, and that will place it uh, in a particular area on the planet. And a general place for dumping things is in the South Pacific. Just because it's big and wide open and not very many things for it to fall on other than water and fish. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Why would China not have had this reenter as a, in a controlled way? I, there was, uh, I, I've read that they may have lost control or lost contact with the uh, space station. Uh, yes, that, that's what uh, I've heard as well. So basically, if 
being having a control reentry requires a couple of things. Number one, you need to know what attitude your vehicle is so you can make sure when you fire that rocket, it's fired in the right direction. And then secondly, um, you need to have a rocket on board that you can fire. It's not clear exactly what happened, but it looks like they lost control of this particular one. So you can't, uh, they couldn't control the attitude to do a burn, which would mean that if they did one, it was it would still come down some random place so that it doesn't buy you much. Also, you need you would need some propellant on board to do that. We we really don't know what the what the circumstance is right now. Talk more about the factors that make it so difficult to determine when and where an uncontrolled object like this will return to Earth. For an uncontrolled object like this that's coming down, even up at the altitudes where the space station is, for example, uh, there is just a little bit of atmosphere up there. And uh, that is slowly bringing down the space station. And if we didn't do a, a, a burn every now and then to raise it up a little bit, it would come back down in some period of time. And same thing for this particular one. It just kind of slowly coming down. It's coming down through the upper levels of the layers of the atmosphere. And you start getting in a little closer. The um, uh, atmospheric density variations, we get to have a greater impact or a greater effect on the uh, eventual reentry time and so forth. And if you have a solar storm or uh, any kind of solar activity like that, or there are other, other physical things that can happen uh, that will affect the atmosphere. So anything like that will uh, change uh, the eventual reentry time. For example, if you have a, uh, a solar storm, it causes actually causes the atmosphere to bloom a little bit. It sort of rises up. It becomes a little bit more dense at some of these higher altitudes. And those kinds of changes um, will, will, of course, affect the object that is coming down. This thing's traveling about four miles a second. Uh, it does uh, see a little bit of drag, and that little bit of, those accumulative effects will affect where it comes in. Uh, space stations are, of course, not aerodynamically designed because they don't have to deal with aerodynamics. Um, so they tend to have bits and pieces all over them and they're odd shapes. How much does the shape of an object affect this uh, atmospheric drag? Now, that's an excellent point. And, it, and more, the orientation also affects uh, where something's going to come down. For example, if you can imagine uh, uh, an arrow in space, uh, the, if you had the arrow pointing into the wind, it doesn't see so much. Even down on Earth, it will go a fairly good distance. But if you turn the arrow broadside, then that means that uh, it'll slow down much quicker. Same thing happens in space. And as a matter of fact, Skylab, when it was coming down, there was a little bit of control at that time uh, of the attitude. And so um, the uh, body was actually rotated to make it slow down more in some areas. And that was used as a way of controlling uh, what orbit it came down in so that you could have a, a reentry that came down more, more, would more inclined to come in over water. So with this object, Tiangong-1, how long before actual reentry will we know more? I mean, we'll be able to say, yes, it looks like it's coming down in the South Pacific or the Indian Ocean or, for that matter, uh, Kansas. We may not be quite as precise as that even, I hate to say. What's required to do a good job of predicting is to get uh, information or you know have some uh, observations, shall we say, uh, late in the reentry. So as, as many observations as you can get is helpful. And then, of course, as you get one that's, uh, say, uh, a day or a few hours away from the actual entry point, that can help you refine it even more. And then even then, there's a certain amount of uncertainty in, you know, again, how the object is going to, you know, how it's going to be oriented. It may be tumbling. It may be coming in broadside. You just don't know. And then also there are atmospheric uh, variations that will affect things. So getting a very precise uh, 
impact location is nearly impossible. And let me mention that the uh, reentry location is one thing. The second thing is that there's a lot of uns- uncertainty in how that uh, the eventual footprint, how the object breaks up, where those pieces will be stri- distributed on the ground. So there's even more uncertainty in that. I assume that these could be spread over quite a wide area. Uh, yes, indeed, they can. As a matter of fact, um, they, they're generally spread right along the ground track of this thing. So namely, it's uh, if you look on these these maps, you see that there's a line that says this is where it is over the earth. Uh, so the debris will fall somewhere along that ground track. And it'll be basically a long, thin thing, maybe four or 500 miles long and uh, maybe 30 miles wide. The width sort of depends on the uh, what winds are uh, happening and doing to debris as it falls. The length depends on how much material uh, is in the uh, in the particular object and uh, what the breakup sequence is. You mentioned observations a moment ago. I'd love to hear more about how we know where this space station is at any point in its orbit. I mean, what are the tools that are that you and others are using to to keep track of it, and for that matter, to keep track of all of the other thousands upon thousands of objects that are now circling the Earth. We keep track of these things by generally using radar. For this, these kinds of objects, there are radar sites around the world. Um, various nations have, objects, have sites that are watching, basically be gathering data that they can use to predict the orbit as it progresses. So it's radar. Is there anything done with uh, optical telescopes for an object like this that I would think would be big enough that you might be able to track it? Well, one thing that you, you can do with an object like this, um, you can certainly see it, uh, but radar gives you more uh, more precise information for these kinds of objects. You can also use uh, optical telescopes to tell you whether or not it's tumbling, what its orientation is, and so forth, and that, that can be done, and that's, that is useful. Generally, optical uh, telescopes are used for the ones out at uh, geosynchronous orbit to look at those and provide orbit information for those. Hmm. Uh, the radar that you, that you mentioned, is that uh, mostly being operated by uh, uh, the Air Force of the United States and other militaries around the world? I think it's generally recognized that the United States has the most complete catalog, but there are others around that, uh, that track data as well, and there are commercial companies coming online now that uh, provide data as well. So this is, this is an area where uh, changes will be happening over the next decades. Bill Ayler of the Aerospace Corporation, he has more to share with us about our crowded skies and space debris. Let's talk more about that and and orbital debris in general. Uh, One of the very first interviews we did on Planetary Radio about 15 years ago, you came on to talk about the inherent dangers that we face with so much space junk, not just the the stuff that makes it back down to Earth, but uh, the danger for uh, other objects in space, including ones that are carrying humans, because we have put so much stuff up there, most of it intentionally, but not all of it. I mean, I think back to that uh, Chinese anti-satellite test, uh, I think, that uh, spread a whole bunch of debris uh, across orbit. I mean, what, what's the current status? Is this situation as serious as ever? Well, it's getting to be a lot more interesting these days. Back in those days, we, we were sort of at a, I'll say, a kind of a continuum of um, launching the same kinds of satellites launch frequencies were fairly fairly constant. But what we're seeing as we look forward now is um, we're seeing uh, commercial companies and universities and others putting up smaller satellites. Uh, CubeSats are coming along or, or being used. And you see, uh, as a matter of fact, we had a, a satellite launch from India that put up over 100 satellites. Uh, whereas in the old days, we put up much fewer 
pre-launch. And these CubeSats are things that uh, you know some high schools are even building these days. So, and they can do some amazing things. The technologies uh, are just like they they shrunk technologies for a cell phone. The technologies you can use in a satellite are really getting getting very small and sophisticated. Planetary society may be a, a small piece of the problem because, of course, we've got our LightSail CubeSat, uh, LightSail Two, that uh, we're hoping is going to be launched on the Falcon Heavy. Uh, next Falcon Heavy launch uh, later this year with a whole bunch of others, these these uh, small CubeSats. These CubeSats, depending on how high they go, they, they can be a long-term problem, uh, and that is an issue. So the CubeSats are being encouraged to come down within, certainly within 25 years, and, and the sooner the better, I think. So low altitude is not, not such a bad thing with those. They're difficult to track as part of the problem. A maneuverable satellite would have to get out of the way of one of those things if it sees it coming. You could um, have quite a smash-up. Think of the, the velocities of these two objects coming at each other in space. I mean, I bet a lot of people in, in the audience for this show have uh, seen pictures of those space shuttle windshields that uh, had pits in them from tiny, almost microscopic strikes of uh, objects in orbit. Yes. In fact, we, there's a, one famous picture that you can find online that shows a picture of, a, of a, a little pit in the shuttle windshield that was made by a fleck of white paint. Wow. So even these little pieces of material that sort of uh, age off of old spacecraft, for example, you know, these, these little bits of material that we put up and then ultimately, for some reason, they get hit by a piece of a micrometeoroid or something and they flake off or uh, just the, uh, they go through some kind of weathering and they, and they come off as well. Uh, those things, traveling those kinds of speeds can be a problem for, for a satellite. That's right. Does it complicate the problem further that these objects, these CubeSats, uh, PicoSats, PicoSats, are so much smaller? I assume they're harder to track with radar than the more traditional uh, satellites that, you know, might weigh thousands of kilograms. Uh, yes, these CubeSats are harder to track, and you know, they're being encouraged now to put uh, laser reflectors on them or reflectors to make them more trackable so people can see them. CubeSats are only only part of the issue. One of the other things is you're seeing commercial companies now where they're proposing to put thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit, say 4,000, 5,000 satellites per constellation. Just the number of objects and their maintenance activities will uh, certainly increase traffic. Would you expect, therefore, I mean, it seems to be pretty simple math or probability that uh, we probably should expect to see uh, more collisions on orbit, more impacts than, than we've seen uh, than ever before. Well, I think that's the challenge is, is how do we deal with the fact that we're going to have a, more objects flying around up there, but keep the, the collision rates down. It's interesting. It's one thing to have a constellation of 4,000 satellites, but it's also you have to Keep that constellation fed. For example, if a satellite dies, you have to put new ones up. These satellites have lifetimes. So if you're going to replenish constellations, you have to send up new satellites. You have to dispose of the dead ones or dying satellites. Or at the end of their life, you want to bring them down. All that can be traffic through these uh, satellites below. So we're going to need really good tracking information on these types of objects so we can prevent collisions with other operating satellites. Hasn't the Aerospace Corporation looked at ways to manage this, and including ways to um, build in systems or to uh, put systems in space that would deorbit or bring down old satellites in the controlled way that everybody would want to see that happen in? Aerospace has looked at that, and we've actually done some uh, we'll say uncontrolled ways of doing bringing CubeSats down. And I think others have done this as well. That is, you know, for example, if 
one common approach is to basically uh, have something like a little balloon that would increase the size of the object. It puts out a uh, uh, like a sail or something like that that slows down or that makes it so that it sees more drag. That'll bring it in earlier. And as far as bringing down a larger object, I think the industry uh, certainly has, has ways of doing that. What's happening worldwide? Are space agencies, do they generally recognize this danger? And is there, do you see collaboration or cooperation to try and, you know, make sure that the skies above us don't become just a dangerous junkyard. Oh yes, I think there's uh, there are entities that have been in place now since the '90s that are that can sort of continually look at the space debris issue, and these are international entities where they bring together space agencies worldwide to discuss uh, these particular topics. Something called the Interagency Space Debris Coordinating Committee is probably the most famous. That's IADC, so you can go online and look at that. They put together guidelines for what should be done to minimize the growth of space debris. For example, this idea that you need to, enter, uh, to re-enter your spacecraft within uh, 25 years, or there's, uh, if it's a big spacecraft to put it in a safe area, were suggested as uh, recommendations that are now part of policy and regulations in some countries. Bill, I can't let a conversation with you end without talking about those other objects uh, up there in space, the ones that we didn't put there on purpose. Because, of course, you have been uh, a leader as well in um, how we study and will hopefully successfully deal with near-Earth objects, and particularly a rock, an asteroid, or a comet that has our name on it. You know, our boss, Bill Nye, likes to, well, he likes to ask, why did the dinosaurs die out? Because they didn't have a space program to uh, find and stop that rock that uh, took them out. What's the current status? Are you seeing progress in that area as well? We are definitely seeing progress. We started these conferences back in 2004, and over that period of time, the topic itself has gained recognition as not really a laughing matter anymore. Back back in 2004, it was there was a giggle factor associated with working in this in this business, uh, but that's gone away, and I think uh, nations are really taking this much more seriously. One of the things I particularly like about planetary defense is any any solution, any real solution, requires planetary effort, not a nation effort. It would require coordination of all the all the spacefaring countries to be able to put up a really good and effective mitigation technique. So there's a lot going on, a lot of good research is happening, and the conferences really bring a lot of that together. One of the other things that I found so fascinating uh, attending the conferences is that the political challenges, the, the problems that you face between nations may be as serious or as great as the technological challenges of of finding and especially deflecting that rock that's headed our way. I mean, have you noticed that as well? Oh, yes. I think the uh, the political aspect of this is a very real part of the problem. In a sense, we have the ability to do a, to deflect an object, but the issue is going to be making the decision, a timely decision to actually do that if a threat's detected. And what that means is you, you have to have the the public behind what you're doing. And so we probe that at the conferences. Uh, we also look at the political issues that, that uh, will come up, and there'll be quite a few. For example, using a nuclear explosive. It may be the most effective way for deflecting an object, but it always gets a lot of interest and in discussion as to whether or not that's something that humanity really wants to use. What are your feelings about uh, our progress in uh, finding and, and tracking uh, the objects, the biggest ones, the ones that are going to be the most important for us to know exactly where they are and where they are and where they're going? 
Back in the late 90s, the U.S. Congress basically authorized uh, or directed NASA to go forward and, and try to find all those really big objects that are a threat to our planet, that's anything over a kilometer in size. And we know where over 90% of those are now. So I think there's been a lot of worldwide effort to try to find those. We're finding that the smaller objects, down to say 50 meters, can uh, destroy a city, or a little bit larger than that can destroy something the size of a county. So the idea is that it isn't going to take out the planet, but it could take out some, uh, you know, significant infrastructure and cause a lot of trouble on the, on the planet. So that's something that's where we don't have quite the record of success, although the efforts are increasing and we're discovering more of these things every day. Do you remember offhand how big the the estimates are that that object was that exploded over uh, Chelyabinsk a few years ago? Uh, yes, Chelyabinsk was about 17 meters. And there was another object that came down in 1908 called uh, Tunguska, which was about uh, estimated between 40 and 50 meters. That one leveled about 600 square miles of uh, forest. That's a big area, and it kind of gives you an example. That's a small object can do a lot of damage. Yeah, and maybe uh, maybe we need, maybe not one that um, breaks a lot of windows all the time, but uh, maybe one of these objects going off where it can be um, experienced now and then uh, might provide a little bit of a dramatic reminder of how important uh, this issue is. And that uh, while one that uh, kills a city or, or a continent may be an, a very, very rare occurrence, it has happened. We just have to look back to that example of the, of the dinosaurs some hundreds of millions, millions of years ago. That's right. I think you're absolutely right. And that's one of the challenges with planetary defense is we know the planet's going to be hit by these things, but we don't know when. And uh, humans have this nasty habit of not dealing with something until they've seen a really good example. We hope we have an opportunity to deflect one be before that ever happens. Looking forward to the next uh, planetary defense conference? Yes, indeed. It'll be held in the Washington, D.C. area, so it should be it should be a good one. Oh, good. And that will make it easier for me to get to than the last one that you had in Japan, which uh, I know uh, we had a few people there, our Bruce Betts uh, attended, and we'll be talking to him in just a few minutes as uh, part of the regular segment he does with me on this show, What's Up? And we love to talk about near-Earth objects, of course. We just talked uh, recently on the program to a couple of our uh, amateur astronomers who uh, received uh, Shoemaker Neo grants from the Planetary Society. Maybe I'll leave with that. I mean, the contributions that so-called amateur astronomers make to uh, this search for and the tracking of near-Earth objects that we found. Is it pretty significant in your view? Well, you know, the, as we start looking for these smaller objects, it's, it's, it's getting to be more of a challenge for for amateurs to play as much of a role as they have. Uh, the small ones are hard to see. You need, uh, you need to have fairly sophisticated equipment to do that. Um, but I do think there's a real role for, for amateurs to be involved. If an object is detected that's small and coming towards Earth and you need verification, I think the amateurs can certainly help with that. We have some very sophisticated amateurs as well. and Various programs have been set up to involve amateurs in these processes. So I think that would be excellent to have them remain involved and to keep looking. So looking across both of these challenges, both the, the objects we put up there into orbit and uh, the ones that, uh, that find us that uh, we had nothing to do with putting up there, are you optimistic about the progress we're making? I definitely am. I think if you look like, on, say, on the planetary defense side, where we've come since 2004, progress has been remarkable. The, uh, on the uh, space debris side, I think we've got work to do there because we're going into a, a new era where we'll be seeing uh, lots of new satellites that are proposed, constellations going up that are going to change uh, the, the environment in low Earth orbit. So we've got work to do there to get ready for that and to be able to make sure that can be done safely. 
Bill, you've been at this for 44 years there at the Aerospace Corporation. Is, is this something that is going to continue to be a, a priority for uh, aerospace? Oh, I, I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, aerospace uh, does a lot of work uh, to, uh, on what's going to potentially be a threat to satellites and, uh, and uh, humans on the ground. That's why we got into the reentry side. We'll be continuing to do this for a long time. This, the, both of these, these issues are long-term issues. Bill, there is a great photo of you uh, that we'll put up a link to, and maybe we'll we'll be able to put that uh, photo separately up on the show page uh, for uh, this show that people can find at planetary.org slash radio. And it's you actually looking through a piece of space debris that I have seen on the aerospace campus in the Los Angeles area. I I just want to thank you for uh, spending so many years uh, trying to protect uh, us and uh, objects in space from each other and from disaster. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. You know, it's one thing about the aerospace business. There's always something new and exciting going on. I've been happy to be part of it. Thanks again, Bill. Bill Ayler, he is an aerospace fellow now at the Aerospace Corporation, one time principal engineer for the Center for Orbital and Reentry Debris Study. The acronym is CORDS. He's done a lot of other great work uh, during his time there. And he is also, as far as I can tell, the primary power behind the biannual Planetary Defense Conference that brings together experts in, in really every field from across the world to talk about the uh, the danger that our planet faces, that our civilization faces from near-Earth objects. We'll be back in just a moment, as promised, with Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio for this uh, end of March episode of our program. We have Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, on the other end of this line. I wanted to share with you up front. uh, Hello, first of all. Hello. (laughs) Stanley Fertig in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Loved your show on PlanetVax. He says he was fortunate enough to visit Honeybee Robotics Brooklyn headquarters a couple of years ago. Now he wants to get a planet vac to clean up his basement. <laughs> well, we'll work on that. The the commercial spinoff. Robots in Brooklyn. I, I can't do the accent. I'll, I'll <laughs> I'm not that. even going to try. Just tell us about the night sky. The big groovy cool thing happening is that uh, Mars and Saturn are getting really snugly and close in the night sky. Uh, they're actually coming up at two in the morning or so. But if you go out in the pre-dawn, you can look in the east, southeast. Two objects, both bright, similar brightness. Mars is the reddish one. Saturn's the yellowish one. They will be particularly close on April 2nd, then grow apart again. So you can watch them come together and then separate. It's very exciting, Matt. Very exciting. (laughs) Evening sky, we've got Venus looking super bright low in the west shortly after sunset. And Jupiter hanging out, coming up around 10, 11 p.m. in the east, looking super bright. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1974. We had the first ever spacecraft flyby of Mercury with Mariner 10. Gave us our our first close-up looks at the the inner planet. And not repeated for so many years. How much of it did we still need to see? About half. (laughs) Mariner 10 did three flybys, but the way the orbit orbital dynamics worked, it basically saw the same side every time. So we had to wait for Messenger to go by in 2008 and then orbit in 2011. And then we got the whole planet 
Yeah, and until then, who knows what we would have were to find on the other half of that planet? Could have been uh, giant billboards or flying saucers or uh, anything unlikely. Well, yeah, but fortunately, they were all moved before two thousand eight. <laughs> they saw us coming. <laughs> exactly, clever, clever alien creature, Mercurians. We move on, to, but seriously, folks, we move on to <laughs> random space bag. Well played. You've been talking this show about Tiangong One. Seems rather big when it's going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, but really was a very small space station. For reference, NASA's Orion capsule that's currently under development has a larger pressurized volume than Tiangong One does, almost twenty cubic meters compared to fifteen. Though only about half of Orion's pressurized volume is said by NASA to be habitable. <laughs> by which I assume they mean where humans can hang out, but maybe there are flesh-eating aliens in the other half. I don't know. <laughs> From Mercury, no doubt. <laughs> they had to go somewhere. <laughs> Boy, I'm sorry for the guys who had to live there, guys and girls who had to live there for a while. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. I asked you, of the 88 modern constellations, which is the smallest in area? So solid angles subtended, to say it more formally. How'd we do, Matt? We uh, got a really nice response for this with our standard uh, prize package. And it was a brand new listener, someone who just wrote to me a couple of weeks ago to say he's so glad that he uh, has found the show. He's loving it. He, he regrets it took him this long to discover it. It also delayed his opportunity to win. That's Jeremy Zuccarello in State College, Pennsylvania. He says that that smallest uh, of the 88 constellations, recognized constellations, is the crux, or as so many people pointed out to us, fans of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Southern Cross, correct? Yes, although you don't have to be a fan of Crosby, Stills, and Nash to still appreciate Southern <laughs> Cross. Doesn't hurt. He said uh, area of roughly 68 and a half square degrees or about 5% of the biggest of those 88, Hydra. So it is little and it's it's really cute and it, it's hard to miss too since I've, I've actually been down there in the Southern Hemisphere exactly once and uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty up in the sky. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to hear about some other people? Oh, I do. Of course. A whole bunch of people pointed out, while the Southern Cross is, duh, Southern, if you go back to the fourth millennium BC, Crux or the Southern Cross was visible as far north as Great Britain, thanks to precession, which is also hidden from us once again. Huh. I'll try that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give us, uh, what's a one-sentence uh, explanation of precession? It's like when a top is spinning and slowing down and the top of the top <laughs> points different directions. That's kind of like precession. Okay. Uh, Martin Hujofsky, who can often be counted on to contribute good stuff in Houston, Texas, or from Houston, Texas, the flags of no fewer than five countries feature crux, Australia, Brazil, Papua New Guinea, and Samoa, or Samoa, as uh, my Samoan, Samoan friend says, that's about 245 million people. Uh, so it carries with it a lot of population, he says. Uh, <laughs> that would have been a great random space fact. Oh, it is. Good job. Yeah. Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate, 
Though some may say the Southern Cross, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, an asterism doesn't count, it's simply balderdash. Instead, I'll put my vote on Crux, the smallest to our eyes, and track its coal sack nebula across the austral skies. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> We're ready to move on. So back to Tiangong 1. What missions visited the Tiangong 1 space station? Name all the missions that visited it. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And no, we did not mention that, or at least uh, Bill Ayler didn't mention that. So uh, good on you. That's a, that's a great follow-up to uh, the contest. And uh, you have this time until Wednesday, April 4th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to uh, get us your answer. And uh, if you are chosen by random.org and have got the right answer, you might just win yourself something very special. We got a note from Perry Metzger in uh, New York, New York. Uh, he says, did you know that rubber asteroids aren't even available for purchase online? Even Alibaba, China's largest source of random products for sale, doesn't list any. Well, that's because we took rubber rocks and relabeled them rubber asteroids. <laughs> but if you get them back in stock, he says, planetary society would dominate the market. It's a huge market for rubber asteroids. I decided, based on Perry's note, to go into my secret and very small stash of remaining rubber asteroids. I knew it. I knew you had a secret stash. <laughs> Stay out of my desk. We will award the winner this time a, a Planetary society, society rubber asteroid, the rarest asteroid type in the world, in the universe. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, is and an, is that an R type asteroid? <laughs> yeah. It's either that or uh, B for bounce. It's. Uh, <laughs> That and an itelescope.net account, a 200-point account on that nonprofit network, a worldwide network of telescopes that you can use to uh, look all over that, uh, that same universe. Maybe you'll find a rubber asteroid out there somewhere. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about, in general, what is the crux of the matter? Thank you, and good night. <laughs> I think you have hit upon it. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist the crux of all science at the Planetary Society, <laughs> who joins us every week for What's Up. Hey, let us know if a piece of Tiangong 1 lands in your backyard. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its watchful members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan at Astro.